I am so excited. I love the book of Ezekiel. I just love it. I think there are so many fantastic things in it. And I'll also say that, well, there are plenty of fantastic things in it. And I loved it for a long time. I've been teaching Ezekiel for maybe 10 years uh, in my Old Testament classes before uh, someone told me, you know, you ought to look at this little theme, one of my colleagues. And I, and I started to look at it. And the more I looked at it, the more I find it, the more I find it, the more I find it. And, and the uh, the more I see there's a really, really powerful message being taught in Ezekiel that we may miss. And so that's what I want to hit on. There are all sorts of other things in Ezekiel we're not going to touch on. I probably will do a, a podcast episode on um, on just the, the notion of uh, uh, the real context and what's really going on in Ezekiel 37. I guess I should say uh, that this is a lecture for SPARK, the Society for the Preservation of Ancient Religious Cultures that you can find at sparkproject.org. Uh, but I think we'll also share this on my podcast, but this is a, we do regular lectures for Spark. And so this is uh, one of the ones that we do and, and I will just share it uh, with others this time and, and invite you to learn more about us. Um, uh, so I'll do uh, at least one, maybe more episodes on a couple of the things that are worthwhile on Ezekiel. But what we're going to focus on tonight is another worthwhile thing. And that's this theme that I think you'll see throughout Ezekiel. So let's, uh, Let's start. I think we need to understand what's going on in Ezekiel right now. And, and for those of you who are part of this uh, as the lecture, we still have a week of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah is the same historical political background. They, they're both uh, their colleagues. They're uh, prophesying at the same time. So maybe colleagues isn't the right word. I don't know if they ever met each other. But anyway, they, they uh, uh, so this it will help you understand Jeremiah. This will help you understand Ezekiel. But it's, it's good to understand just a little bit of the political background so that you can understand the prophecies we're going to talk about better. So we're going to start with Jehoahaz II. He's king of Judah. He's the, the second son of Josiah. So Josiah was the great kind of last great, wonderful, amazing, righteous king who led them through religious reforms, uh, refurbished the temple. Uh, renewed the covenant uh, and so on. Fantastic uh, king who, uh, as Egypt, who uh, had gained control over Israel during this time period, nominally on behalf of Assyria, but I mean, yeah, but really it was kind of on behalf of Assyria initially, but initially, after a while it was just them. And in some way, Josiah must have re resisted that. And so the Pharaoh killed Josiah in battle, it would seem, maybe execution, not sure. But anyway, uh, he kills Josiah, so his second son, Jehoahaz, becomes king. Um, he's put on the throne by a group called the people. So he's put on the throne by the people, uh, and that bypasses uh, his older brother, uh, who is going to be uh, the, the king, and he voluntarily submits to Egypt. I think he saw this didn't work well for his father to fight against Egypt, so he just voluntarily submitted to Egypt. Um, but Egypt is, at this point, starting to have a lot of problems with Babylon, and so they're... Uh, it's it's clear that there's going to be a conflict between Egypt and Babylon. Um, Pharaoh exiles uh, Jehoahaz to Egypt. He makes him force him to go to Egypt, and he and he levies a huge fine on uh, Judah. So that uh, big tribute that he's asking for them. So uh, that brings us to Jehoiakim the second. Pharaoh uh, Necho the second takes his older brother, the one that had been bypassed. His name is Eliakim, and he changes the name to Jehoiakim and makes him ruler. So both of those are his way of showing he's in charge. The people can't choose who's going to be king. He chooses who's going to be king. And so he, he makes this other person the king and he changes his name just so everyone knows he's really in charge. Um, and Jehoiakim, who is made king by Egypt, 
supports Egypt, even when it became fairly obvious that this wasn't going to work out well until the very end. He does eventually switch, but for a long time, he supports Egypt, even when it was clear they're not really going to be able to do that much. Jehoiakim has a lot of encounters with Jeremiah. He doesn't like Jeremiah very much because Jeremiah is prophesying both that he's abusing his power and he's wicked and and that they're going to fall to Babylon and all sorts of other things. So there's some conflict between uh, Jehoiakim and Jeremiah, quite a bit of it. Uh, by the way, there's this great, uh, well, I, I say great, I haven't seen the very end and I don't agree with every single way they portray things. I haven't seen the end yet, but there's a great movie on, uh, I think it's on Amazon anyway, somewhere you can find it, uh, called Jeremiah, Patrick, Patrick Dempsey plays Jeremiah. So that's kind of fun to watch as well. Anyway, um, eventually Jehoiakim transfers his allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. This is after the famous battle of Carchemish, where the Babylonians defeat the Egyptians. And at this point, Jehoiakim can see, okay, well, Babylon's going to be here soon, and Egypt is defeated by them, so I might as well as be loyal to Babylon instead of Egypt. Um, in 600, so keep in mind, this is really close to the time of, uh, of Lehi. Well, Lehi is certainly alive and doing things at this time, so contemporaries. Uh, in 600, we, he decides to withhold tribute from Nebuchadnezzar, and he seems to be hoping that Egypt will come through for him and help him, since Babylon had tried to invade Egypt and they hadn't succeeded, so he started to think, oh, maybe this will work. As a result, Nebuchadnezzar sends an army full of his own people and Syrians and Moabites and Ammonites and other people. He sends this huge army against Judah, all right? Um, at this time, Jehoi Jehoiakim dies, and Jehoiakim succeeds his father. He's 18 years old, um, he reigns for three months and Nebuchadnezzar comes in with his main army and subdues the city and says, actually, you're not going to be the king. So he takes Jehoiakim and most of the elite and the rulers that had had anything to do with the court because they had been in rebellion against him. And he takes them away into Babylon. So this is just like the scattering of the northern kingdom of Israel came in two phases where the, the Assyrians came in and took a whole big group away and then. Israel was good for a while in their eyes. They didn't rebel, and then they rebelled again, so then they came and took everyone else. That same thing's going to happen with, with Babylon. This is the first phase where they take away a whole bunch of people. Daniel is one of those, as he's very young. Ezekiel, who is older and is a priest, is also taken away. This is when Ezekiel will go into Babylon. Um, so he puts uh, Zedekiah, uh, Jehoiakim's uncle, on the throne. So this is the third son of Josiah to be king. All right. And the last king of Judah, remember that in the first reign of the, of the year, the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, that's when Lehi's story starts in the Book of Mormon. Uh, so we've had these three sons of, of great King Josiah be uh, kings, and none of them are really uh, very good. But anyway, so he puts Zedekiah on the throne. So now what we have is a situation where in Jerusalem you have. Uh, Jeremiah and uh, Lehi and other prophets, we know there are several prophets who are prophesying, and then you have some prophets in Babylon, and uh, the Chabar River that just comes right off the Euphrates, is uh, that's where Ezekiel is, and so Ezekiel is prophesying to Jews mostly in Babylon, but also kind of to people in Jerusalem, while Jeremiah is in Jerusalem prophesying mostly to people in Jerusalem, but sometimes to people in Babylon. Uh, and so we have parallel and contemporary prophecies. Jeremiah started a little earlier than Ezekiel, uh, but they'll both go up through the destruction of Judah. So that's the, the background. 
that's we need to understand that's what's going on when Ezekiel is prophesying. Most of his prophecies are as we're getting very, very close to the destruction of Judah after they've already started to be scattered a little bit. So let's just look very briefly at the structure of Ezekiel um, and then we'll, we'll get more. So we get chapters one through three is is the little introductory verses to tell us who he is and his call. Uh, we'll look at that uh, quite a bit. Chapters four through thirty two are the warnings. Repent or you're going to be destroyed. Chapter 33 is the chapter in which Jerusalem is destroyed. And after that, we get prophecies about the future of Israel. This is actually very, very similar to the, the structure of uh, Isaiah, where you have his call, you have all these warnings, and then you have near destruction or destruction of the northern kingdom, near destruction of the southern kingdom. And then he starts doing a lot of prophecies about the future and so on. So we're going to look at chapters one through three. And I want you to, in particular, uh, pay attention to a, a temple theme. All right, we're going to look at this temple theme throughout the book of Jeremiah. So chapters one through three are what we would call a sod. All right, and a sod is a Hebrew word for a heavenly council. This is when uh, God reveals things to his, his prophets and it's some kind of a call where they have an experience with God. So, for example, in the famous chapter in uh, Amos, Chapter three, verse seven, where he says, surely the Lord God will do nothing save he revealeth his secret. It's really save he revealeth a sowed to his servants, the prophets. And what it means is he's not going to do some huge thing without having a council with his prophets and letting them know what's going to happen. Uh, so this is Ezekiel sowed. Um, verses one through three are the historical introduction. We're going to see uh, that. And, and uh, then we're going to see his encounter with the divine. Uh, so let's look at that. Verse 1 and 2, it came to pass in the 30th year and the fourth month and the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Kabar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. And in the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's reign. So I don't know what's the 30th year of what, but it's the fifth year of Jehoiakim's reign, or, or captivity, sorry. He, he began to reign, and then he was taken captive as the, the fifth month of that. Uh, so. We're now in Ezekiel chapter one, verse four. And I looked and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north and a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself. And, and we won't read all of this, but you get the idea. Ezekiel, like many who see a, a vision of the divine, has a hard time describing it. And he says, there's a brightness was about it in the midst of the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. And in the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man and everyone had four faces and everyone had four wings. And their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. And they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides. And they four had their faces in their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. They turned not when they went. They went everyone straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side. And they four had the face of an ox on the left side. And they four also had the face of an eagle. So. It seems like he's saying that there are beings with four faces, and one is a man, one's a lion, one's a, an ox, and one's an eagle. It might be he's describing something different because he has a vision that, that has a lot of close similarities to the vision that John the Revelator has. And John the Revelator says he sees four of these, these winged uh, creatures, and one has the face of man, and another one the face of a lion, another one the face of an ox, and another one the face of an eagle. So I don't know if Ezekiel's saying on this side it was this guy, and on this side it was – I don't know. But these are very similar – visions and, and clearly symbolic. I don't know exactly what the symbolism is. Later, people will associate uh, each of those um, uh, creatures that John the Revelator sees with one of the gospel uh, 
authors, right? Uh, the evangelists, we sometimes call them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I don't know that that's what was intended, but anyway, that's that's one of the things that happens. But it, it, he's seen a kind of being he doesn't know how to describe. All right. Now we get into some really important stuff. And, and you'll note, um, we went through verse 10 on that one. We're skipping forward to verse 26. And above the firmament, so he's seen a firmament in the heaven that, that was over their heads, was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it. So he can't quite describe exactly his position. And I saw as the color of amber and the appearance of fire round about within, uh, from the appearance of his loins even upward and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire and it had brightness round about as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud. So that's the rainbow in the, in the day of rain. So is the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So he knows this is the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face and I heard a voice of one that spake. So he knows he's seeing God uh, or Jehovah, and he's trying to describe how bright he is and glorious he is, and he has a hard time doing it, but he recognizes this is this glorious meaning he falls on his face. All right. Now, we're not going to keep reading all of that, but I want you to get the idea. He's seen this, the, the divine presence. Um, he has this reaction where he falls on his face, and then we get um, his commission after that. He's going to receive a commission from the Lord. To, he eats a scroll, and it's sweet, and he has to go and speak the word of the Lord, and, and he's told to, to go and say what God is telling him to say. All right, And then uh, he receives reassurance because he knows it's going to be hard, so he receives reassurance, and uh, that's, that's through this, uh, sweetness of the role. And then he's given the commission again, where he's supposed to do it. And then he's given the commission again. And then finally, we get a conclusion to this where it reiterates his, his, uh, commission. And then he says, he's going to execute his commission. He's going to do what God tells him to do. So those are those introductory chapters. All right. Now we're, he has some, uh, some messages that he starts to share. And then we move to chapter eight and in chapter eight, it's clear. He returns to that vision. It's in the sixth year, so in the six months. So this is like a, a year and a month later. And in verse two, he says, Then I beheld, and lo, a likeness as the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his loins even downward, fire, and from his loins even upward, as the appearance of brightness as the color of amber. This is the same way he described Jehovah before. So he, he understands he's seeing Jehovah again. All right. Now, if we read the next verses in, in chapter eight. And he put forth the form of an hand, and he took me by a lock of my head. So Jehovah's grabbing him by the hair of his head and lifting him up. And the spirit lifted me up between the earth and the heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem. So he's in Babylon, but he's now coming to Jerusalem to see something at Jerusalem. He's coming to the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north. So the inner gate of the temple is what he means. Where was the seed of the image of jealousy, which provoketh jealousy? I don't know exactly what that is, but somehow he sees an, a, an image, a seat that lets him know that God is being a jealous God about what is happening there. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, according to the vision that I saw in the plain. So he recognizes, I've seen the glory of God. I saw him in the plain. Now I'm seeing him in the temple. Then said he, I assume Jehovah, unto me, son of man, lift up thine eyes now to the way toward the north. So this son of man is used quite a bit. And, and in this case, he's emphasizing his mortality. This is not the son of man that Daniel sees in a vision just a while after this. And then becomes a messianic figure that the Savior refers to himself a bunch. But this is where a son of man is in your mortal. Lift up thine eyes now the way toward the north. So I lifted up mine eyes the way toward the north. And behold, northward at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. So there, God is jealous in the entry of the temple by the altar. 
And he said, furthermore unto me, son of man, seest thou what they do, even the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth there, that I should go far off from my sanctuary, but turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations. So he says, I'm seeing them do abominable things in the, in the temple. They're uh, committing sacrilegious things here, there, and, and it's making it unholy, and I can't stay in the sanctuary if it's going to be unholy. But I'm going to show you even worse stuff, he says. Uh, but, but the emphasis is he's, he's going to have to leave because of this. He said, and we go and behold the wicked abominations they do here. And we'll just read verse 10. So I went in and saw and behold every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. So they're portraying all the things that they shouldn't portray and they're idols. They're, they're, they're worshiping them somehow. So they've, they're putting idols in the temple. We'll jump down to verse 12. And then he said unto me, son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery, for they say, the Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. He said also unto me, turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations. So he says, they're seeing all sorts of terrible, they're doing all sorts of terrible things, and they think no one will see. Now we jump down to verse 16. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men, with their backs toward the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, and they worship the sun toward the east. Then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing? Uh, and it's not light as in uh, rays of light. This is not heavy. Is it a, is a, a, a not heavy thing to do uh, to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? So he's saying this is pretty heavy stuff um, that they are worshiping idols, not just all over the place, but in my own temple. For, and beyond that, they've filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger. So what's the result of all of this? That they have done these abominable things. What will that result in? Well, we get that in chapter nine uh, and he's going to call to him and so on. But the, the key thing we want to read is in verse three. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. So the glory of God is, is leaving where the cherub were and going to the house. So this is an interesting thing. Um, we, we've got what, what's meant by being with the cherub. Well, th remember that the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies uh, this ark had uh, cherubim on it, and that was thought to be the, the seat of God, the mercy seat or the seat of atonement. That's the throne of God was there, and he would sit there and be covered by the cherubim. And so the cherub are symbolic of, of protecting his presence, but of where his presence is. And in this case, it, it, he wants us to think of the Holy of Holies because that cherub is there, but it's also these winged creatures are present with him, meaning they are going to move with him when he moves, but they are still praising him and protecting his presence and protecting us from his holiness and so on. And so you've got the Ark of the Covenant in some ways, but you've got live cherubim, as it were, that are, are moving with him. As he moves from where the cherubim were, which is the Holy of Holies, he's now moved to the threshold of the house. So he's left the Holy of Holies and he's gone to the exit of the temple. That's what Ezekiel is seeing. So now we go to chapter 10. And he's going to tell us the same thing. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. This is very similar to the description that Isaiah gives when he sees God in his temple. And the sound of the cherubim's wings was heard even to the outer court as the voice of the almighty God when he speaketh. We go to verse 18 in chapter 10. Then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. So he's now not only left He's seen him leave the Holy of Holies to go into the holy place 
and uh, and the door that goes from the holy place to the courtyard. Now we see him leave out of the the house into the courtyard. He's he's left the temple. Uh, verse nineteen, uh, after it talks about the cherub and their wings, it says, uh, and that they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God, God was over them above. So he's, he's they're getting ready to leave, and we get chapter eleven. And the spirit of the Lord fell upon me. So this is verse five and said unto me, speak, thus saith the Lord, thus have you said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. And we'll skip down to verse 10. Ye shall fall by the sword. So this is what's going to happen to them because of all of this wickedness. Ye shall fall by the sword. I will judge you in the border of Israel and ye shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, neither shall you be the flesh in the midst thereof, but I will judge you in the border of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, neither executed my judgments, but have done after the manners of the heathen that are around about you. So they're not keeping the commandments. They're, they're uh, being idolatrous and they're doing all the things that their neighbors do that they're, they know they're not supposed to do. But here's an interesting part. So he, uh, Ezekiel says that because God tells him to say it. And then in verse 13, so that was verse 12, was the last one we wrote, verse 13, or read. Verse 13, and it came to pass when I prophesied that Pelatia, the son of Benaiah, died. Then fell I down upon my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, wilt thou make a full end of the remnant of Israel? So you see, as soon as Ezekiel prophesies that they're going to die, one of them dies. And I think Ezekiel feels terrible about this place. He says, okay, you're serious. Death has come to these people. Will, will you kill them all or will there be a remnant? That's his question. That's what he's wondering. So now we go to verse 16. Therefore say, therefore say, thus saith the Lord God. So this is what Ezekiel is supposed to say. Although I have cast them far off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. Therefore say, thus saith the Lord God, I will even gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel, and they shall come thither, and they shall take away all the detestable things thereof and all the abominations thereof from thence, and I will give them one heart. Let's, let's uh, think about this. Verse 19 is really important. So this is a prophecy about the future of after they've been scattered that he will gather them in. And when he gathers them, I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them an heart of flesh. So that's... Uh, that's that's a beautiful thing that that he's going to change them once he gathers them in he will change them and they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them and they shall be my people and i will be their god those that's the phrase that means that they're keeping the covenant that they're both in uh, keeping the covenant with each other again that's beautiful stuff more in chapter 11 but as for them whose heart walketh after the heart of the detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their way upon their own heads, saith the Lord God. Then, so he's saying, okay, I will gather some in, but for those who just are going to be wicked, it's not going to go well. Then did the cherubims lift up their wings and the wheels besides them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over and above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. So the glory of God has now left the the Holy of Holies left the holy place into the courtyard, left the courtyard and left the city of Jerusalem. And it's gone over the Mount of Olives and it's just leaving. This is the sign that they've lost that because they've broken the covenant. They've lost God's presence. 
And of course, this is happening for Judah as a whole. We should also see parallels of how this can happen in our own lives as we can lose the presence of God as he, as he leaves us. So now we're going to jump forward quite a bit to chapter 33. You get all sorts of prophecies and warnings and, and promises about possibility of forgiveness and all sorts of other things in the chapters in between. Now we get to chapter 33. And we're just going to read verse 21. And it came to pass in the 12th year of our captivity in the 10th month, in the fifth day of the month, that one that had escaped out of Jerusalem came unto me saying, the city is smitten. In other words, this is the verse that says Jerusalem's fallen. Uh, Babylon destroyed it. They destroyed the temple. They've taken literally. So this is a prophecy that the, in some ways that the Ark of the Covenant would be taken out and the temple would be destroyed. Uh, but God had already really left and left with the real cherubim before this. But, but now it's happened. So we get continued messages. That was 33 is, is where we get the message of destruction. And then we get in chapter 34, this is about shepherds and the need for shepherds to guide Israel and help them come into God. Um, in chapter 35, we get prophecies that Israel's enemies will be judged. Those who harm Israel will end up being judged. And then we get some really important and beautiful stuff in 36. Uh, in chapter 36, verse 24, it says, For I will take you from among the heathen. So this is a prophecy about the gathering again. Out of all the countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Note how clearly he's saying, then we're really going to be keeping the covenant, both of us. And this is so reminiscent of what's going on. At the same time, Jeremiah is making the same prophecy. And it's uh, in Jeremiah. So for those who are listening on the podcast, you did it last week. For those who are listening to this live, it's what you're going to be reading this week. Um, in Jeremiah 31, you get it in 30 through 32, but especially 31, where God promises he will renew the covenant with them. And this time, he's not going to have the law written in, in a heart of stone, but in a heart of flesh. And it will change their heart. Same idea, same, well, very similar beautiful language that both Ezekiel and Jeremiah are using at the same time to prophesy that in the, despite all of the destruction that is happening, that God will give them another chance. And of course, this happens for Israel or Judah as a whole, and it happens for you and me as Israelite individuals. All right, so then we get chapter 37, which as I said, I'll do a separate uh, thing on. We don't have time for it tonight. So for my, my live audience here with Spark, I'll just invite you to, to listen to that episode on the podcast. But, um, but think there are two, just in brief synopsis, there are two main prophecies in, in 37, one about bones coming back together and one about the stick of Judah and Joseph coming together. Both of them are really about gathering. And uh, if you'll read through, God interprets them that way. We have secondary interpretations we do that are wonderful, but those have actually more meaning if we look at the primary interpretations. And so uh, it, that's helpful to see this whole big story together. The next chapters, 38 and 39, are prophecies about Gog and Magog, or in other words, a huge apocalyptic kind of battle and destruction at the end. Uh, in my other uh, lectures that we've done here, I've talked about how I think this is primarily spiritual. Maybe it's also physical. I don't know if it's physical or not, but I'm certain it's, uh, it's about spiritual warfare and spiritual battles in the last days. And after all that terrible battle and, and warfare and destruction, 
that will finally lead to chapter 39. At the end of chapter 39, the heathen, so this is after the destruction of the big battles and God defends Israel and destroys Gog. Um, and the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. So they're going to know why they went into captivity, because of their iniquity, because they trespassed against me. Therefore, hid I my face from them and gave them into the hand of their enemies. So they fell by the sword. So verse 23 is saying why it happened. Verse 25, therefore, thus saith the Lord God, now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be jealous for my holy name. So the phrase I will bring again doesn't mean he's going to make it, have them go into captivity again. I just don't think it's a very good translation. It literally means I will turn or I will uh, turn back or unwind the captivity of Jacob. So I'm going to undo the captivity is what he's saying. And I'll have mercy on the whole house of Israel. In verse 27, when I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of the enemy's lands and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, then shall I know that I am the Lord their God, that's covenant language again, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen, but I have gathered them unto their own land, again, that's covenant promise, and have left none of them anymore there, meaning in, in uh, being scattered or in captivity. Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. So all the, when repentance happens, gathering happens, and all is made whole. All that is so that that's again in, in chapter 39. All that is going to lead to these marvelous prophecies that we get in, in say 40 through 43 where Ezekiel has shown in vision that uh, a temple will be built. And he sees that the measurements of the temple and that there are 12 gates, four on each, or three on each side for each of the tribes of Israel and, uh, and so on. And that water will spring from the temple and will go down the hill of the Dead Sea. I don't know if that's literal or not, but I'm certain it's symbolic. And so there's a lot to learn from that symbolism. So this beautiful prophecy about the restoration of the temple um, and all of those gates that are so important uh, and, and the tribes being able to go in and out because of those gates. Uh, and then he's told not only is there the temple, but then there's the that's that's this huge area in the city. And then you have this, uh, an area for the the uh, people in the city of Jerusalem and, and an area for the Levites. And then actually that becomes uh, the, the Jerusalem is the holy portion. And then he goes through and divides out the land in a different way than ever divided before. But the land for each of the tribes of Israel and so on. Uh, and, and we should stop and look about this temple. I, I, I don't think that this is telling us literally what will happen with this temple. I think it's symbolic. I think there will be a temple, but I think it's symbolic. I could be wrong, but I think so. And, and part of the reason I think that is, as we look at the dimensions of the temple, um, the temple courts are about a square mile. Um, that's bigger than the whole old city of Jerusalem already. And the holy portion for the priests and Levites would carry an area six times the size of greater London. This is just a little bit bigger than is, is probably actually going to happen. Uh, but maybe it's literal, but I think it's symbolic. I, I don't know. So after he measures out the temple and, and sees exactly how this temple is going to be built, we get some beautiful stuff in chapter 43. So chapter 43, starting in verse 1. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looketh toward the east. And behold, the glory of the Lord, or the God of Israel, came from the way of the east. So remember, that's where it left, was over um, the Mount of Olives. Now it's coming back from the east over the Mount of Olives. And his voice was like the noise of many waters and the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision, which I saw even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city. So those visions he saw back in chapters eight and uh, 10 and 11. 
And the visions were like the visions that I saw by the river Favar. That's the same visions. And I fell upon my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate whose prospect is toward the east. So the same way you saw him go out, it's coming back in. Verse 5. So the spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. So now it's back in the inner court. And I heard him speaking unto me out of the house. And the man stood by me. And he said unto me, Son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I shall dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. And my holy name shall the house of Israel no more defile, neither they nor their kings by their whoredom, nor by the carcasses of their kings and their high places. So he's saying, I'm coming back because they're done with this idolatry. They're done defiling things. And so then he gets some more images of measuring out the altar and some specific things in that courtyard, right? So he's still in the courtyard, hasn't gone into the the holy place yet, but it's in that courtyard and they measure out everything there. And then we get chapter 44, verse four. Then brought he me the way of the north gate before the house. And I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And I fell upon my face. Uh, so that's, this is the, the symbol, the symbolic entrance of God coming back into the temple. But, but what he's really saying is that they regain his presence. Of course, this is symbolic of the journey we're all on, where one day we've lost God's presence, but one day we'll regain his presence. Uh, we do that in small ways. Now we lose the spirit. We have the spirit come back to us. Israel has been scattered. Israel will be gathered and have the spirit bestowed upon them. Uh, but eventually this becomes in a really big way when we really do come to the presence of God and we don't have to leave anymore. And so I think really, in, in many ways, this theme that we see that really does go through the whole span of, of Ezekiel where he sees God and he sees his presence in the temple in chapter one, and we see him leaving and then all the, the prophecies about what they need to do to repent and then the destruction and then the prophecies about what happens when they do repent and they're gathered and then God coming back to his temple. It's really a theme that runs throughout the entire book. And I think it says a tremendous amount about covenant and mercy or chesed, we could say. That's a phrase that certainly uh, President Nelson has been uh, keen in on. I would really invite you to read the October Liahona uh article by President Nelson, and he talks about chesed there and, and God's covenant mercy. But that's what this is really about. Because God has made a covenant, he will keep working with us and keep mercifully giving us another chance. And by us, I mean Israel as a whole and each of us as covenant is individuals. And he will eventually bring us back into his presence. That is a fantastic, fantastic, uh, amazing, wonderful, and comforting message. Uh, one that I certainly needed uh, tonight and about which I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>